So it's good to see you again, Spurgeon. It's Tuesday today, and you were on the call, I think, with uh, Marie on on Saturday. And um, uh, since since that time, we've been talking, especially this morning, about the proliferations of the mind, and and what catching uh, versus seeing is all about is is that we can see the proliferations. The question is, is can we catch them and put a stop to them? That's the real issue is uh, how long do the proliferations proliferate before we say, aha, I see you. And then maybe a few more of those thoughts. And then we figure out that, wait a minute, we can do better than this. This is dukkha. And then we put a stop to it. It's only when we recognize that this is dukkha can we put a stop to it. Yeah. Well, by the way, would you say dukkha and effort? Not right effort, but I guess like a work, maybe almost kind of effort. Yeah, the same working thing. too hard is a dukkha. Yeah, they're almost the same, like effort and dukkha are almost the same thing, right? Because it feels like well, when I catch, oh yeah. Go ahead. It feels like when, when, it, when it, I catch it, it's like a relaxing thing. Like it, it's, it's like, oh, I don't have to do that. Like I don't have to. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Like, like the you don't. It's like uh, making commentary on something that happens, right? It's like you don't have to. You can just let it be as it is, right? Uh, well, that depends upon what it is that we let it be. That's where so many of the students get confused, is because there's a couple of things going on. All right. One is, is that we're proliferating about something that we don't like. And then when we wake up to that, here's the two possibilities. One is, is that we, we catch the proliferations and we recognize those proliferations are because of something that we don't like. And so it doesn't make sense now to just hate the proliferations that are proliferating about what we hated. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and that's where the most of the students get stuck is when they catch themselves proliferating, they start proliferating about proliferating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been there too. <laughs> and so the whole quality of letting it be has to back up beyond the uh, or back before the proliferations to recognize what we're actually proliferating about is something that we don't like. Let's let the that be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's stop clinging to that rather than uh, uh, or caring about that because those are the proliferations is all the caring. All of the wanting and the caring, that's what winds up being the proliferations. And so we can say, wait a minute, I don't have to do those proliferations just because there's something I don't like. Maybe I can change my attitude. So um, the example that we had used before is about Merrick Garland appointing a, uh, uh, a special prosecutor, uh, a Smith, to uh, do the investigations and the uh, prosecutions of Donald Trump. 
And when the Democrats first heard about it, they hated it. Oh, this is going to slow things down. Oh, he's only doing it for political reasons and oh, this, that and the other thing. And then they proliferate a while more, but they're still trying to figure it out. Rather than seeing that we're proliferating about this. We're cogitating, okay? So that's what, uh, and in this sutta, um, the Buddha mentions the, uh, it in the sense of the proliferations that beset a man, okay? That we get uh, uh, attacked by our own proliferations. That it's the proliferations that are the dukkha. Is the word translated as proliferations in the English of uh, English? That, well, that's the English language word. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm having to use the translations that I have because I haven't memorized the entire Pali. <laughs> <laughs> but it is in the Honeyball Sutra number 18 uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya where uh, it is talked about that uh, the thoughts and proliferations and the cogitations and the uh, uh, efforts that we take to solve some problem is um, a lot of work. That the problem didn't need to be solved in the first place. In other words, when the Democrats first heard that Garland is a uh, appointing a new prosecutor, they can say, okay. <laughs> and they don't have to go, oh, that's terrible. Oh, what about this? It'll slow things down and all of that. And and then then they have to keep thinking about it to, uh, to recognize, well, Merrick Garland is very busy. He's the entire attorney general. These are only two cases and maybe a special prosecutor is exactly what we need. Guess what? None of these politicians who are stewing about any of that know what's really going on. Mm -hmm. They're just guessing. Yeah. And really, it's like almost like the proliferation is acting like something else is the problem when it's actually the proliferation itself is the, that's the problem. The yeah. proliferations are the problem. Yeah. yeah. One unwholesome thought after another, after another. And the question is, is not only can we see proliferations as proliferations, but that we can stop it and say, wow, I don't have to think about that right now. I don't know the answer. That in fact, a lot of our society is based upon future as if everybody's expected to know what the future is going to be. And everybody tunes into the news and they rarely hear news. What they hear is the mental proliferations about what this news means for the future. And about 85% of all the news is proliferations about the future based upon the 15% of the news that they're broadcasting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's like the 24 hour news, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, all that's uh -huh. left to talk about is proliferation pretty much. Yeah. And people are bound to watch this stuff because after all, these are experts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And it, all it is is just the mental proliferation. So, in fact, that's actually a good example uh, or a good uh, way of looking at the news so that we don't get wrapped up with it. I mean, the whole point about the news is, is that they're trying to keep you both entertained and engaged. 
to where there's a lot of things that we could become engaged with that don't bring up all of these mental proliferations. And so this is the way that we can learn to practice in about catching these proliferations as they're going or let's see, let's see them. Now, uh, the way that the Buddha teaches uh, is that as soon as we see that stuff to never mind, start again to come back to the breath, to, to leave that stuff, to get away from it. And in, in fact, for the beginner, that stuff's just going to pop right back in. I mean, you're already on a roll with those proliferations just because we saw it and stopped it one time. Doesn't mean that it's going to be stopped forever. That in fact, those proliferations will start right back up again. And that's okay. If we can catch them one time, we can catch them again. That in fact, we took a lot of the weight out of it, a lot of its momentum when we changed it the first time. So let us say that it's barreling down the mind at about 100 uh, miles an hour and we stop it. And then when it starts back up, it's going at about 80. We can stop that even easier. But we get tired of, oh, I keep stopping it and it keeps coming back. And I say, yes, but it, when it comes back, it doesn't come back with nearly the intensity. And after stopping these proliferations four, five, six times, there's, we're finished with it. Yeah, things become yeah. like, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Things become lighter and like, um, I don't know, it's more spacious, it seems like. In general, I mean, there's like cycles, right? It gets some, like we talked about last time, some days or sometimes it, it gets better, sometimes it gets worse. But yeah, mm -hmm. in general, well, it, it does get easier. Yeah. Actually, the 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 universe that we live in is spacious mm -hmm. <laughs> and that we can experience that spaciousness if we're paying attention but what gets crowded is is when we keep adding all of these mental proliferations in fact it's almost as if we live in a paradise but instead of destroying the paradise we move in with all of our baggage all of our mental baggage and then the mental baggage is that we unpack that and we keep unpacking it and we fail to recognize that we're actually moved into paradise because we're still still uh let us say occupied with the baggage that we brought with us and this is one of the good reasons for having a retreat is to recognize that uh, and his, this is a funny thing, even though it's a major part of the retreat, the way that they're set up and, and they copy, you know, one retreat group copies another retreat group, some old guy who knew what he was doing that started the retreat, people continue to do it just that same way over and over again, and they lose sight of some of the really important points. So... Uh, that to say that mean uh, is going around to what those retreats were originally set up for was to give people that space to give them that space by getting them away from all of their proliferations and all the heavy baggage that they've been carrying around for so long and when we set that proliferational baggage down life becomes really easy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And so when a retreat is set up, it should, or people, when they're doing the retreat, the announcers should talk about this. That basically uh, what happens instead is people get involved with the schedule. The retreats all have a particular schedule. The, the less schedule there is, the better. But, uh, and the reason for that is because the Westerner, when they go to the retreat, they'll go to that schedule rather than going into retreat. They'll go to follow that schedule. Mm. The schedule itself becomes the proliferation. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then you're laying on that stone slab or a bed or whatever they've got for you and the bell rings and now we go through that mental proliferation. Do I really have to go to this meeting now? Do I really have to go? Oh, well, they're going to be talking now. This is a Dhamma session. So, yeah, I'll go to that. Hmm. And when we do that, that's the point already is, is that when we have that kind of stuff going on, we're already not getting good value out of those retreats. Because we don't even recognize that that too is a mental proliferation. Mm -hmm. Okay, do I go or not because of the schedule? To where the whole point about it in the beginning was, is that it was a retreat, a way to get away from all of the mental proliferations. And so um, the schedule that they have is not important. The only reason that there would be a, a schedule is at least certain times of the day that they're going to give a Dhamma talk. And it's best that a whole lot of people be there to the Dhamma talk so that the teachers don't have to keep repeating the same stuff over and over again, that they can get it all out in one show. All right. That's exactly the reason why we put people in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, to where it's fairly clear that kids could get an education in a one-room schoolhouse, to where all the kids in town went to the same school, they all went to the same classroom, and they worked together at various ages, almost like a, a family or an extended family. But now, oh no, they put all the six-year-olds in the same room. And all the seven-year-olds in the same room. Okay, so this this has advantages for management, but it has some real distinct disadvantages for the students. And so there's an example both in the Western education system as well as these retreats. Everybody's got to go do the same thing. And the whole point basically of a retreat is to stop going around in that up two, three, four army style that the retreats have wound up becoming. Yeah, it does sound like uh, I've never been to these retreats, so I don't know, but it sounds like uh, what's it called? What is it called? The military training again, like boot camp training, right? Yeah, it sounds it sounds a bit I, like that. <laughs> I think that the one at Gawanka's retreat got to be known as the boot camp. Yeah. And part of the reason for that was is that his gentle nature that was there in the very early days in the 1970s and 80s was uh, uh, lost when he died. That he didn't actually um, encourage any of his students 
to start teaching and spreading the Dhamma so that you can get an organization going to where it's really clear, very, very clear in the suttas that the, that the Buddha expected the, the monks who were in training, their advanced training was to be trained in teaching. Mm. And so you had Mahamagala and Mahakasapa and Sariputta and Ananda and uh, uh, Chanda and uh, uh, a lot of different monks who wound up having 30, 40, 50 students at a time. Mm. Okay, so this is how the Goenka method should have been set up, but it didn't. Because I don't know why. Maybe it was the fact that Goenka knew that he didn't have all the Dhamma in the first place, and so he didn't want to train students to be teachers with an incomplete Dhamma. That might have been what it was. <clears throat> or maybe he never figured out that he's if he's going to have a real lineage, he's going to have to pass that down, not on a cassette disc. <laughs> he's going to have to pass that lineage down through the through the students who were really getting the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. And I will admit that, that, that the teaching that I have done over the years has greatly influenced my own life. Almost as if, well, if I say it to the students, then I'm kind of bound to do it myself, you know. <laughs> That's true. That's kind of how I, I teach piano a lot. It's kind of the same. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, another example is, is that if somebody is going to go on a diet, but they don't tell anybody, then that diet will be very weak. But if she goes around telling all her friends that she's on a diet and she wants help and support, she's much more likely to go on a diet because she's got all of that um, mental proliferation into it. Mm. So this is an important point then about these retreats is, is that they wind up being uh, students teaching students. Um, I remember even before I became a monk at Wat Suan Mo, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan Po set it up so that I was I was forced into having to uh, start teaching. Also, Achan Po did some really strange things with me on that. That one of the things was that every Saturday afternoon was a work detail, where the monks really did work in the sense of laying bricks or uh, pulling steel. They only worked once a week uh, on Saturday afternoon. But I Chan Po, you know, when I would show up, he says, oh, you don't have to do anything. You're a teacher. You've <laughs> already done all of your work. <clears throat> and and so that was part of that installation of being at that level, because most people even if they decide that they're going to go teach and take a teacher's training course or something like that, because of the kind of encouragement that they get, they're not actually fully uh, a teacher yet. They're almost still always a teacher in training. They're not quite sure of the Dhamma. I see that in all of the uh, Western teachers. Hmm. that they're not quite sure of it. 
And the reason for that is just, it's almost like a sword is not sure that it's a sword yet until it's been tempered, it's been put in the fire. That you don't know the Dhamma yet because you haven't had to teach the Dhamma over and over again to those who know the Dhamma better than you do, giving you the stamp of approval, I guess is another way of saying it. That that's what makes a good university professor is that he was a lecturer, uh, an instructor at a university while he was still a graduate student. If somebody goes all the way, even through the PhD, but he wasn't a lecturer at the university while he was a graduate student, he may teach college later, but he won't be very good at it. Mm -hmm. He has to be encouraged through his uh, mentors, mm -hmm. the PhD committee. So that's an example in, in that realm also. So uh, the Western teachers, though, well, a lot of the ones I've heard seem confident. So that you don't mean that they're not confident in it because it sounds like you said they're not sure, right? Right. Yeah, they may they may or may not exude competence, but. Uh, basically, there's two issues. The question is which one is bigger than the other, but the issues always have to do with uh, money and sex. Those are the things and that these teachers that uh, get started. Uh, they they have to deal with both of those issues and that in fact you can see that religions like Christianity, especially in the United States, has not done well in that area. That uh, back in the 80s, especially, there was just a flood of problems with Jimmy Swagger and uh, uh, Jim Baker and uh, oh gosh, the list goes on one after another. And we can see that in Buddhism also uh, to where old Trungpa Rinpoche and um, uh, Chula Dasa, a lot of these guys who wind up teaching, even if they're teaching for years, they still haven't gotten that uh, dedication to the path yet. They're still looking for, oh, uh, the Dhamma is wonderful, but it's not sexy and it's not profitable. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's interesting. And huh. so that's why there's so much money wrapped up in Western Buddhism. Hmm. If the guys were really, really confident that they could do the teachings, then they wouldn't need to charge money for it. Hmm. That they would have gotten their breadbasket already secured. But that's one of the, the issues that the, that the Sangha, the, uh, the Bhikkhu Sangha has solved. And I don't know where else that happens very well, but the Sangha itself takes care of its own so that each individual monk doesn't have to worry about his meal ticket. They could practice Dhamma instead. Okay, so if you've got a Westerner teacher who is ready to teach the Dhamma, where is his security blanket? Yeah, so it gets mixed in with like the prop, like money, profit motive kind of. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I've seen it actually when I was on Reddit years ago. People would make when this issue was presented, people would come back with, well, uh, Dhamma teachers have to eat too. And and that was a very kind of ordinary response. The um, the answer to that would be that if these Dhamma teachers need to eat, then let them go eat. And when they are full and they no longer need to eat, then they can teach. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Because then they can teach according to the Dhamma rather than according to their belly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just the Dhamma anyway, right? Is uh, be satisfied. And if if you're acting from satisfaction, then it's it's kind Absolutely. of Absolutely. How can yeah. someone who is not yet satisfied teach satisfaction? Yeah. The answer is they don't bother. They've got a curricula here that they got out of a book. Mm. Without doing the deep work of finding out that all oh, this is all about satisfaction. That's what sukha is really all about, is coming out of our dissatisfaction and coming into satisfaction. But if the if the teacher hasn't heard that yet, then that's not part of his teaching. If he hasn't brought that home yet, he can't dish it out. So, um, if the if the teacher still needs something, that will become evident, and then that means that it's going to be difficult for him to teach. This this um, uh, example happened frequently in the 1970s, early 1970s. Cigarette smoking started to become taboo. The government, I mean, they knew about cigarettes and the dangers of it for years and years. And finally in the 1960s, even with all the lies, that in fact today's lies, the way that they lie was all invented by the tobacco industry trying to keep tobacco going. Okay, so that's the setup. So somebody goes into and talks to his doctor about should he quit smoking or not? You already know the answer to that question based upon the doctor, not the medical science. If the doctor still smokes, he'll say it's okay to smoke. If the doctor has quit smoking, then he will be very hard on his, uh, his patients. You gotta quit smoking. If the doctor never smoked, then he's going to be kind of in between. Yeah, it would be a good idea if you quit. But ex-smokers, they're really going to be on it. Okay, so in that regard, then those who have now become ex-smokers of dukkha <laughs> are going to be really heavy on getting the students to stop smoking dukkha. <laughs> 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 but if they're still smoking dukkha, then they're going to be lackadaisical or inefficient completely about getting the students to stop. That is funny. <laughs> and we haven't run across anybody yet that has never <laughs> smoked yeah, dukkha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> smoking in, in this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay, so you can see that also then with other things like generosity. Like what, sorry? Generosity. 
generosity and gratitude are major, major parts of uh, the, the way that the monks deal with the lay people in Thai culture. About how the monks express their generosity. Because a simple thank you is not good enough. In fact, a simple thank you is almost taboo. That what you have to do is to give them your heart. So um, on Bendabat, the monks don't go around thanking the people for the for the food that you're putting in the bowl. They practice silence. They practice looking in the bowl and going along with the form that's been developed. So what I'm basically getting around to about this generosity then is I learned a, quite a number of lessons about it by being a monk. And those who uh, profess becoming a Dhamma teacher who have not been a monk probably have never gone through the kind of training about generosity. And so the point that I'm making here is, is that if a Dhamma teacher is charging money for the Dhamma, then where is his generosity? And how can he teach generosity? If he is actually exploiting his students and not being generous with them, then when they leave and go someplace else, they probably haven't learned that issue of generosity very well from that particular teacher who was not being generous to them. That in, in, in fact, um, at the retreats at Watch So and Milk and many other retreats that I have done, uh, the, they, they talk about Donna and generosity and the value of it, but uh, because of the situation of the, most of the teachers being a monk, in fact, in the Thai tradition, they only want monks to do the teachings, even though in the time of the Buddha, there were lay people who were so steeped in the Dhamma that they were qualified by the Buddha to teach. And the reason that that's not true here in Thailand is, is because monks are expected to teach for free out of generosity. And so they don't even ask for Dharma. In fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dansa had made a point of it that um, uh, they have something at almost every watt that's very much like in the Catholic Church, a, a poor box. You know, for people to go and put money into the uh, to support the church, right? And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says that those boxes should be hidden away. They should be hard to find. They should not be taken as a prominent display. Down, you can. Oh, it's okay to have a poor box. You just put it someplace where uh, it's kind of ignored most of the time sitting sitting on the side or whatever it's not put out in in prominent display and so that's how that was the tradition that i was raised in the tradition of that money is not an issue and so there's another story that i will tell you and that is, is that there was i've forgotten the name of it it's a retreat center up in the mountains of north carolina and they get various teachers to come and that uh, I, I did a 10-day meditation retreat there, and uh, two things were of an issue. One is, is that some of the students were extremely grateful because I was teaching actual Dhamma, 
not the watered-down rebirth, reincarnation kind of stuff. And the other one was, was that I made no mention of money or please contribute or anything like that. And so what happened was, is when I was leaving the retreat after all the students had left and got to the car door, there tied to the door was a whole bunch of stringed envelopes that had been, I mean, the, the students must have done this together to get that much string and that many envelopes. There was more than $2,000 in that, uh, uh, that group of envelopes that were tied to the door of the car because of the generosity that I'd given the students. They wanted to pay back through their display of their own generosity back. And that's the way that it is. I would I would think that, in fact, that Christianity and other religions would never have come to the prominence that they had had in the world if they had charged money for it. Can you imagine St. Paul going around to the Ephesians and says, boy, have I got a gospel for you. The good news is here. It's going to cost you thirty five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. All of the like founding figures in Christianity didn't charge anything right but now nowadays it's the norm hmm. that is interesting mm -hmm. i thought of yes well mm -hmm. it's it's only the norm because of the way that buddhism had come to the west it came to the west not through nobles it came to the west through scholars and for people who psychologists who wanted to add a little bit extra to their um psychology degree or looking for a, a way to time structure getting money out of their clients you know that kind of stuff and so that's how buddhism has gotten set up in in the west hmm. and so that's what we're doing with the open sangha foundation is to get all of the western students who uh participate in this in the sense of finding the website and finding out what we're doing there is to point the students back to the original because now because of the Vietnam War there's approximately 500 watts in the United States and Canada and there's watts in Mexico there's a watt in Brazil now I hear so it's, it's spreading around and that's the place where Westerners should go to find the Dhamma is the monks who have spent their whole life in the Dhamma and yet what do we do instead? We buy books mm -hmm. written by famous authors yeah. who, who are in it for the money. And so they keep writing one more book after another, <laughs> keep charging. I've, I've heard at one time um, the, the price of the retreats for the head dude was $5,000 for the retreat. But wow. one of his students you could get for $3,000. <sighs> for one retreat, 5000 Wow. Mm -hmm. That is a lot. Yeah, they call it the upper middle way. <laughs> and the online training course I've heard is $7,000. <laughs> Even more for online. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and so you do the Dhamma on your uh, on your Internet and uh, pay $7,000 for, I guess, browsing YouTube. And then all you get out of it is a piece of paper saying that you're qualified to teach. 
mm. with no experience in teaching. Mm. And so this is what we can start to do something about. My, my kind of plan is, is that those who can go start spending time more and more time at the what? If they make good friends with uh, uh, the abbot, uh, then things will work out. But I was mistaken in the sense of how long it takes because I've had two students come and say, oh, I had this very interesting conversation with this monk the first time that they went. And the monk is already talking about, well, why don't you come here and teach Dhamma? <laughs> <laughs> because that's the way that it should be, to have a senior monk who doesn't know the language well to help a Westerner come to start teaching. Once mm -hmm. a week, have an, uh, an evening uh, meditation class, eventually we'll do retreats on the weekend. When the teacher is ready and the wad is ready, then we can do longer retreats, maybe a week or two. The problem with the longer retreats is food. Who's going to cook the food? Oh. And we don't want Papa John's to do it. <laughs> and yet I've seen retreats operate that way. <laughs> they just order a bunch of food or something. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. everybody get together and we're going to send out for lunch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you see, on the weekend, we can get the Asians to do the lunch for the retreats. And so that wouldn't be uh, so much of a problem. So we can actually start doing that. And all we need to do is to get you guys who were interested in the, uh, the Dhamma to find out that generosity is part of the practice. Hmm. So we can start doing something. In fact, I invite you to, to, to look into what Parker and Tyler and Joe and Robert and Keyshawn and the crowd is all what they're up to. Have you have you been on Discord? Yeah, I've been. A, uh, I've joined a couple of the calls they've done on Discord. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've spoke with Scott a couple of times. Mm hmm. Yeah, so when people ask me, can can they contribute? They generally do that very early and the answer needs to be delivered later. Mm. Okay, and so in the beginning I say, no, I don't need any money. That's not what I'm here for. I don't need to make any money, either donations or otherwise. What I want instead is for people to donate their time, to donate their, their, uh, their real value to donate uh, actually in a way that gains them great value. Parker will tell you this, since he started doing the work that he's doing, he has been greatly benefited by working with the others and whatnot. And so this is the way that, uh, that it should be done, but we got to do it in the West, knowing that the Buddhism is already becoming established as a business item. It's already gotten that way. In fact, the, the, the new kid on the block is, is that management is sending people to retreats to go for mindfulness so that they can pay attention to their job better. <laughs> yeah. And do a better job. 
And the answer to that is be careful what you ask for. If you send these people to the retreats, they may figure out not how to do your job better. They may figure out how to live their lives better. That's what the <laughs> retreats are all about. <laughs> and not need the job. Yeah. Yeah. And when you can live your life really well, you may not need that job. Yeah. Hmm. Then, in fact, right after COVID, tech jobs were high. Everybody wanted the tech job. Now, Google and Facebook and Twitter with Elon and the whole crowd are laying off thousands and thousands of uh, techies. That most of the work that's done in the world is done by only a few. Hmm. That uh, you you know that Elon is having trouble with Twitter right now. Mm-hmm. Guess him. what? He he is not having trouble. It's all the mental proliferation from the news that's having trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That his idea with Twitter is exactly the same thing that his idea with SpaceX and with um, um, uh, Tesla. Is, is that if you want to work, go work. We don't need people who need a job. We don't need people who need a job. We need people who are wanting and willing to work. And so he fired, what, close to three quarters of the 7,000 staff. That in fact, the only ones that he's really interested in is the software engineers that work at, uh, at Twitter. All the HR and all of the uh, uh, decision making and all of those kind of people, if they're not coders, they got fired. It's like the bureaucracy, right? Yeah, the whole bureaucracy and and uh, Elon, that's one of the things that I can congratulate him on with all of the ordinary stuff that he does. He can at least see that almost all jobs are irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> Thailand has full employment as a, uh, yeah, as a, as a, um, let us say as a national goal or a standard that all of the bigger corporations uh, have to do with. Um, And so one of the features of that is, is that every hotel, a big hotel, if it's a big enough hotel to be called a hotel, they have a whole staff of security guards and most of the time, those security guards are standing out in the road, not doing the job of an actual policeman if you needed a police. The fact is, you don't need these guys out there. And yet here they are standing in the middle of this road, stopping traffic to, to let the people who want to come into the hotel have high status. Because you've got these guys out there standing in the road, they're completely useless. There is, uh, if this is the the one job that I know of that is not just useless, it's counterproductive because <laughs> they block traffic. Hmm. And so, uh, getting these guys away, but that's the that's the style of of Thailand is is that they have full employment, and so. I have seen that to where most of the people who are working in an office are not working. One or two people will be doing all of the work and everybody else is loafing around. Mm. That during my years as a contract uh, software uh, dude, I would be in situations to where one or two of us 
did everything. And all of the other software developers were either chanting or trying to figure out how to do it or whatnot like that. And when they didn't, couldn't figure out how to do it, they would give it to me and I would finish the job and then they'd take credit for it. <laughs> and so I saw that on, uh, in a way. But it's our culture that's set up that everybody needs a job. Yeah, yeah. No, that's completely wrong. <laughs> everybody needs to eat. Mm-hmm. But that's all. So if the whole system was set up to where the food was the only issue and that people could live their lives happily without having to worry about where their next meal was coming from, I would think that that would be very conducive for the Dhamma to spread right around the world. Mm-hmm. The jobs are possibly the number one um, problem with the spreading of the Dhamma, because most of the meditation teachers wind up making their Dhamma teaching their job, mm-hmm. rather than their joy. Hmm. And, and, and so, in that regard, we can teach the stuff that's really, really important to teach. If the teacher is not satisfied, then he it's hard for him to teach satisfaction. If the teacher has no generosity because he's broke and he needs money, then it's really hard for him to teach generosity. And so we can turn all of that around. Slowly, slowly. And the, one of the issues then is how can we get people comfortable so that they know that they can eat and teach the Dhamma without having to have those two things tied together? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is, is that anybody who uh, Westerner, they don't have to ordain. That in fact, at every Wat that I've ever been to, one or two, or maybe the the majority of the people who live at the Watt are not fully ordained. That's just the style. That I, I have, <laughs> when when young men get a broken heart because the girl that they wanted did, jilted them in time and mommy and daddy will send the boy to Watt. <laughs> Let him go cool off in the Watt for three months. <laughs> wow. Huh. And so this is the kind of style that we need to promote through the Open Sangha Foundation is the ability for Westerners to either um, one or the other to start spending more and more time in the Watt because if they spend more time in the Watt, they can actually keep their job for a while and, and live at the Watt and get rid of their rent, get rid of all of their belongings. And the last thing that they'll get rid of is that job. (laughs) <laughs> and now and now that they can live happily in the want because they know that they'll eat and they can spend their time thinking and talking about the Dhamma, teaching the Dhamma, and it will spread very well that way. So this is the idea of the Open Sangha Foundation is to get people interested in going and spending time at the Wat. Mm. Where do you live? Uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, okay. They're one of the biggest big watts in America is in Los Angeles. They've got more than 20 monks there. 
Okay. What's it called? Well, you can just go uh, to How About Watch Near Me. That's what the way that the, our friends have found out uh, how to use Google is just say watch near me. Yeah. And let Google figure out what town you're in and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And I'll so that would be what I would recommend for your next uh, uh, is, is to go. Uh, you don't have to go to do anything. You don't have to go to introduce yourself. Just go. Just go and hang out. Just lollygag around. Just enjoy your experience there. You don't have to hassle anybody. They'll come to you. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Yeah, there's it a little. It may take a while, but just sitting down in the meditation hall and and practicing on a panasati, and they'll get <laughs> that'll get their attention right okay. there. <laughs> because most of the Westerners who go to these watch are there for tourism. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Like a cultural thing, kind of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if you go and start practicing Anapanasati, the abbot will find out about that soon enough. <laughs> uh, these meditation halls, are there a lot of people there just sitting down? Um, actually, generally, if you just pick a random time and walk into the Watt, the likelihood is, is that you will not see anybody. Really? Right. Nobody's around. Where are they? They're in their rooms. Mm. That's especially true in the afternoon. So that's why it's best to go at a particular time, and the particular time is on the weekends at about 10 in the morning. That's the ideal time to show up mm. because a lot of people will be there. They'll be there for feeding the monks. That uh, it would be like a Buddha day. So go to the Wat on the Buddha days. Another thing that's really useful is to dress. You've heard all things about dress for success, all right? The likelihood of you getting a job by going to an interview, <laughs> smelly, un un. Uh, undressed properly, but if you got that business suit on and you're all spiff, you you got a chance of getting the job. You have to wear a business suit. Okay, that's also true about the Watt. That the Thai people expect when people go to the Watt to at least wear a white shirt. Okay. For for purity. So uh, if you if you show up in a white shirt. Um, that that's actually your indicate or your message that I'm interested in the Dhamma. And if you wear ordinary street clothes, then that the message of that is, oh, I'm just a, a bum hanging out with nothing else better to do than to terrorize your what? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, just the white shirt is important or like what to wear? White, white, well, the the pants are not so important. Okay. Beige would be if you've got them, whatever pants that you have, the lightest colored pair of pants that mm. that you can that fit and look well. Uh, would be the answer to that. That the, the lower is not important. Then in fact, uh, a white top and a black uh, lower is very characteristic of a, even higher class. So the basic is 
nothing at all. The first step in is a white shirt. The second step in is a white, all white, white and uh, lower and upper. And then the next step in is white on the top and black on the bottom. Oh, okay. And so that's the kind of hierarchy that's built into the mindset of the of the Thai people or Southeast Asian. That's part of the culture. And it's actually good to know some of this cultural stuff because it'll help you uh, get introduced. Also, if you take a picture of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa or learn to, to say his name in, in Thai language, all the B's turn to a P and all the T's, D's turn into a P. So Buddha Dasa winds up being Puta Tat. Puta Tat, okay. Puta Tat. Mm. Now, how so, that happened, I'm not sure okay. because they've got both B's and P's and they've got both D's and T's in the, in the language. So how they got the B into a P and the T, the D into a T, I'm not sure. <laughs> but the end of the word follows a rule. And that is, is that words don't end in a vowel. Okay. Uh, excuse me, that's not true. They tend to, they tend to shorten the words. Huh. And then the S becomes a T. So putatat. <laughs> or they might know the name by Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, but that's an English or uh, uh, closer to the actual Pali Act is where that word comes from. Buddha Dasa. The word Dasa, by the way, means servant or one who is devoted. Okay. So, uh, oh, devoted to Buddha. Mm hmm. Okay. Or Dhamma Dasa would be devoted to the Dhamma. Wait, what does your name mean? Dhamma Rato? Rato is actually a word that means great joy. Mm -hmm. A great satisfaction It's often translated as delight. And so the word bhikkhu, or excuse me, uh, Dhamma Rato means one who is delighted in the Dhamma. And so I kind of live up to that name. That's what the names are for. The, the names are either that which you're already good at and will get really good at later or it's something that you don't have that you need to develop. Mm. So that's how those names come out. So Santi means peacefulness. Dhamma Vitu means uh, one who is a knower of the Dhamma. Oh, Vitu. And Dhamma and Achan Dhamma Vitu, he fits that. He really knows the Dhamma. <laughs> okay, well, I'll look up. Oh, yeah. I'll find that. That's, you said it's the biggest Watt in LA. In LA. But, but there's a lot of. Actually, just go look and see what Watts are around and what's available. Okay. There's more than likely one or more watts in Los Angeles will be a Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa watt. Hmm. Should I look specifically for Thai watts? Uh, if we're using the handle for Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, then yes, the Thai. 
However, if there's no Thai watch around or if there's no Thai watch sitter dedicated to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, then yeah, Cambodian, uh, Lao, uh, and Vietnamese would be the, the place to go because there's more of them, you see. There's not so many Burmese because the Burmese weren't part of the Vietnam conflict. There's not much Sri Lankans because there's not many. In fact, uh, there is a, a fairly large but not enormous Sri Lankan community that live in London. They don't have enough to do their own Wat, but they do um, Wat Amaravati. And when they come, they come as a whole herd or a tribe. There are so many Sri Lankans that go to that Thai Wat. Mm. And I know of other situations like that, that uh, uh, the, this, this was 20 years ago, and I'm not sure what's happening now, but a good friend, a, a Western monk, went to, to uh, Malaysia for his visa. He hadn't gotten the visa straightened out back then yet. And uh, while he was in KL, uh, he decided to go to the Thai Wat there. I mean, after all, he was a monk and get free room and board easy enough. And when he walked in, he was encountered by the abbot having a broken Chi uh, English language conversation with a Chinese woman. It turns out that the, the abbot himself was Sri Lankan because there's a lot of Tamils and Sri Lankans and all of that in Malaysia. You'd expect a Taiwat to at least have a, a, a Thai monk as the abbot. But no, this Taiwat has a Sri Lankan as the abbot. And this Sri Lankan was talking uh, to this woman because her husband had just died. And mm -hmm. so he's giving her all the advice. Oh, everything is going to be all right. He's in a good place. You don't have to worry about it. Everything is hunky dory, that kind of language. And uh, um, David thought, wow, this guy is so not Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. I think I'll just leave. And, but he waited. And then after the woman had left and the uh, Sri Lankan abbot uh, uh, had time for, for David, uh, David, all he had to do was mention that he was from Wat and Mok and immediately the turnaround. There is actually a tradition in Thailand that we don't proselyze, which means if people don't ask about the correct Dhamma, they're left to believe about Buddhism, whatever they want to believe about Buddhism. It's only when people ask questions. And this woman, having lost her husband, was not ready for the real Dhamma. Yeah. And hmm. so he gave her the consolations that she needed. But when David mentioned that he was from Wat Suan Mok, this Sri Lankan monk changed completely. Because he was already in Asia. I have met Sri Lankan monks that, in fact, are quite noble. And they let me teach Noble Dhamma at their Wat to the kids. And that uh, I've been to another Sri Lankan Wat where I taught the Noble Dhamma to the kids and they didn't want me to come back. <laughs> and so that's the that's the problem is, is that Buddhism is a mixture of ordinary people and nobles but that's a better position to be in like christianity 
You see, there's two kinds of Christians. This is a joke coming up. There's two kinds of Christians. <laughs> one, one kind of Christian uh, is the typical kind of Christian that you meet anyplace. They're into politics, they're into LGBTQ, they're into blacks are bad, they're into all kinds of uh, uh, stuff that Christians are into. And then there's the other kind of Christian who actually follows the teachings of Jesus. Rather than setting Jesus up as some Lord and Savior, they actually follow the actual teachings of Jesus. Guess what? I've never met that kind of Christian. <laughs> <laughs> to where in Buddhism we have both the ordinary people yep. do ordinary things and we also have the nobles who follow the teachings of Buddha. And that uh, the West is in grave danger of going down the same rat hole that all of Christianity went down. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough nobles, even though there are literally hundreds of nobles in the United States. They would rather go to Reddit or go to the bookstore or go to some fancy B&B &B that they call a retreat center. Pay a lot of money and that's what Buddhism has become. And they're missing some of the most important teachings. Hmm. That in fact, the, the uh, here's, here's a perfect example. Imagine that you had a piano teacher mm -hmm. who was a skilled piano teacher but she didn't know the kind of stuff that you needed to talk here. Actually, this happened to me. I'm getting into an old story now. Uh, <clears throat> when I was going into music at the university, they had a, a, a qualifying exam or an interest exam and that you had to have a repertoire of piano pieces. And if you couldn't play these pieces, you had to do two years of piano classes as part of your curriculum, right? And that uh, in that exam, one of the pieces that I played, the dean of the school didn't like the way I played it. And he was going to make me two, take two years of piano lessons or uh, because I didn't, uh, know how to play this piece of music. And it turns out that the teacher that I had in high school was new kid on the block, that the woman who was actually the best piano teacher in town would not take me as a student. Oh, really? Yeah, for some reason or another. She was busy, she said, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So I took whatever piano teacher was, was there. But this situation that we're talking about now was completely different. And so I had reflected that I had taken a um, uh, a band camp at uh, one of the, uh, actually it was a, some university, I forget, that was in North Carolina. Uh, and that in that band camp, one of the uh, things that we did, we had to go to a recital, which was this guy's PhD, his PhD in, in music. And I forgot what he played, but I remembered him and also remembered that he lived in, in Dillon County and he commuted to university. So that was the plan. And I got a hold of this guy and told him what happened. And he says, well, let's do that Chopin waltz again. 
And I played it for him again. And he says, oh, I see what the, the dean was after. <laughs> and so I actually had to unlearn that piece of music and learn it correctly. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of work to do. I wish I had had that teacher when I was actually in high school learning that piece of music, rather than having to fail like that, make a big splash as a failure, and then having to go get a good teacher and unlearn what I had done wrong and then relearn it again. Yeah. Okay. And that happens with Dhamma big time. Hmm. That often students have to unlearn what Dhamma that they have so that they can relearn it in a noble way. And it's like it's more difficult to or it takes I guess it just takes longer to unlearn and then and then learn again. Well, what that means is, is you had one original bad set of habits and you started working on that and mollifying it and making a new set of habits that were also yeah, that's true. <laughs> not wholesome. Yeah. And so uh, eventually then the student has to unlearn two old bad habits or two sets of old bad habits while they're learning a new one. So this is also part of the danger of the, the teachers in the West who were not really qualified um, that that in fact um, it's a it's a very typical thing that I see on the Internet and other places. And uh, the example that I'm thinking about now is uh, I did a, a video with uh, Guru Viking. Yeah. Steve James, he yeah. actually yeah. came here to Thailand for the yeah, interview. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he cared that much. And so we had a nice long interview and he wound up uh, uh, publishing that. And now after that, here's a commenter. Mm -hmm. Oh, Damarato has a big smile on his face, blah, blah. But he's not enlightened. <laughs> And I haven't ever answered that one, but uh, uh, generally I don't. But the, if I did answer it, the question would I would I I would start off with is, oh, thank you so much. I have finally found someone who actually knows what enlightenment is. Please explain it. Because most Westerners, they don't have a clue. Everybody makes up their own view of what Buddha is because they haven't been around them. And it's like, I don't know, if enlightenment's something other than just being satisfied, then who wants enlightenment, right? <laughs> yeah, whatever enlightenment is, I don't want any of that. I've got all I need already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's part of the magicalization that happens in every culture that in fact Buddhism when it goes to a new culture that's the issue that they have to deal with but in Western Buddhism it's actually become as a religion it's already come with all of the uh, the trappings of it and it's got the additional problem is is not only has all of these bad ideas and what it's all about uh, part and parcel of the thing the teachers that they wind up finding are still stuck in that whole world. Hmm. That is, it's actually better to teach. Once you know what what you're talking about, the tradition, by the way, is that one should not be teaching the Dhamma unless they're already a Sotapan, already in the stream. 
And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has modified that to the point that, well, you don't have to actually be fully sotapan in the sense of the fruit, that you can be partially sotapan in the sense of the path. And that the criteria that he uses is, do they fully understand Paticca Samuppada? Mm. If, the, if, the teach, if the new teacher fully understands Paticca Samuppada, then it would be okay for him to teach within that context. Because he's already understands the noble Dhamma through the Paticca Samuppada, the way that the mind works. But you'll find that generally Paticca Samuppada is not well understood at all in the West. Hmm. And that most of the famous, most famous uh, teachers don't bother to teach it because they don't know it. They don't understand it. And so uh, under the two criteria, either Bhikkhu Buddha Dasas or in the tradition, most of the teachers who were teaching in the West are not qualified to teach. They're qualified only because they paid enough money and got a big enough certificate on their wall. So that's that's it. That's the uh, and and let us say that we may not ever be able to turn that around. That's already stuck in, but we can actually still intentionally start to publish and put out that there is real noble dhamma available and the best place to find it is at your local what okay i'll i'll see i'll see if i can uh, visit one sometime um yeah that would be that would be fun to go and just sit down and you're saying i should just go sit down and yeah, just just sit down and hang out. Go on a Sunday morning okay. and plan to spend the afternoon there. Who knows what kind of conversations will happen? Okay, okay, I'll try it. I'll try it. Um, hmm. Yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, we were trying to get off on all this uh, stuff about the Dhamma and the West and everything. Uh, we were originally talking about uh, proliferation, right? Right, and Prolif- why did we proliferate? Yeah. That's interesting. No, it, um, what, what, with Paticca Samuppada, is it, would it be a good idea to kind of, I guess, it seems like getting into all of the details of that, it might be a little, may hinder me a little bit. I don't know. Because sometimes I can get a little obsessed with, like, this thing and that thing. Like, the doctrine of it, right? And uh, it kind of um, makes the practice a little too complicated sometimes. Well, actually, um, <laughs> the the teachings of Paticca Samuppada will we'll not do that now. Let's do that at a later time when we're together okay. again. But I will say this about it, and that is, is that when the mind is fit for work, mm-hmm. the Paticca Samuppada becomes the work. Okay. Okay. Hmm. And when we say that, we're not talking about a doctrine. We're talking about a map. 
Okay, so when you, uh, we'll put it in this context, when you get all of your camping gear and you have a, a retreat place that you're going to go to, you need a map to get there, all right? Or another one is, is that the mind is very much like a cave and we need two things to go caving. One is we need a map because uh, prior cavers have been in that cave and they know their way around and they drew us a map. And it's a good idea to have a map of the cave because otherwise we, we might be one of the uh, uh, catastrophes or victims of that cave because we fell into a hole that we didn't know was there, but it's on the map. Okay. And we need one more thing to go caving. Beside the map, we need a light. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is, the, oh, the light is getting the mind fit for go, going caving. Uh huh. And so what we're actually, that's the actual teachings in a Paticca Samapada is really how does the mind work that we get ourselves into a state of clinging or into a state of caring that makes it uncomfortable. Mm. That's what the real teachings of it is all about. And it's broken into three different groups, past, present, and future. Mm. But the, uh, the ordinary mind full of magic thinks that the past is a past life, oh, the yeah. present, and then the future life to where the reality is, is that no, Whatever got us up to this point is our past, mm -hmm. including the immediate past, then the immediate present, and then the immediate future. And sometimes these three immediate cycles take three seconds <laughs> mm. to go from delusion all the way through seeing something and then get caught in it and then caring about it and then suffering under it. And all of that happens really fast in the mind. And the Buddha's got a particular method of showing that out. And it's got some very significant points to it. That in fact, when you understand Paticca Samuppada really well, you recognize that no one lives in reality. Everybody lives in a, a constructed reality between their ears. We take data and then we try to make sense out of it. We try to understand it. How do we understand it? Well, we use the, the mechanism of the understanding called perception uses our past data rather than, uh, uh, let us say, newly gathered new data. So if you see something and you don't know what it is, just keep looking at it rather than trying to figure it out by comparing this to something that was in the past. Mm. Because whatever's in the past has got feelings and emotions built into the package. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, because it, uh, the the when you had contact with the thing in the past, there was ignorance, right? It's like. Right, because yeah. the stuff that comes in from the past was done in ignorance. Yeah. And, then and so the, we just pile on more and more ignorance rather than yeah. recognizing we, what we need is new data, more new data. Hmm. 
to actually stop thinking about how bad it is to start looking at how good it actually is. And it's really not, well, it did come from the past, but it's just a pattern in the present, right? Really, when you see it. Mm -hmm. yeah. We learned those patterns from our parents when we were too small, too young, and too ignorant to recognize that we were being fed a pile of crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so we carry that pile of crap around with us as if it were sacred knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> and what we really need to do is start looking at what everything is right now rather than hanging on to the old stuff. So this is basically then the entire teachings of the Buddha is wrapped up in this teaching of Patija Samapada. Mm. And not only that, but it is a full blown description of the second noble truth. Patita Samapada is nothing but the expansion of the second noble truth. The cause of suffering starts with ignorance. Ignorant feelings wind up making us suffer. And that's what the Patita Samapada is all about in great detail. Including the proliferations. Mm -hmm. Which happen at perception. We perceive all those proliferations, looking for an answer and looking for an answer and looking for an answer and looking for an answer without recognizing, hey, man, I don't need the answer to that right now. <laughs> yeah. If we're looking for answers. Why? Because we're clinging. We care. And so we proliferate and we don't get an answer. So we proliferate again and we don't get an answer. So we proliferate again and we don't get an answer. <laughs> Yeah, and that's samsara, right? Yeah, that's samsara, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So let's do that next time. Let's talk about okay. Patita Samapada at a different time and go into it in detail. But I think that we've gotten some good stuff talked about today. Yeah, yeah thank you for all the information on the Watts, too. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll look into that. Yeah, this is a good call. Thank you. <laughs> Thank All you. right. We'll see you later. Yeah. See you, Damarato. Thanks.